The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Hey, John, my husband told me I can't look at any more babies. He's done, he says. So that baby, though, how cute. Oh, my gosh, so cute. Congratulations, Anderson. Now go to bed, John. You're tired. I know you are. You work so hard. Thank you. Everyone, I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And, well, people who have nothing to hide don't destroy evidence that must be archived under the law. Says who? Donald Trump. People who have nothing to hide don't smash phones with hammers. Don't bleach their emails or destroy evidence to keep it from being publicly archived as required under federal law. Hmm. Remember all those cries of crooked Hillary or lock her up and throw away the key? Well, you remember. Crooked Hillary. was a criminal. She deleted her emails. People go to jail for that. Her emails, which put America's entire national security at risk. So crooked Hillary, wait, crooked that you should lock her up, I'll tell you. Doesn't age well, does it? You know, his relentless attacks actually work though, right? That infamous private server controversy may very well have cost Hillary Clinton the presidency. Now, look, in no way would I ever endeavor to excuse any mishandling of government information, particularly if it's classified materials and especially if you're secretary of state. But let's talk about what actually happened in reaction to those allegations. The FBI did open a criminal investigation and the Justice Department closed it without bringing any charges against Clinton or anyone else within the scope of that investigation. There were no findings of any intentional violation of law in that case. And let's not forget, there were hearings and hearings launched by House Republicans in Congress over those emails. So if consistency is what you should go for and having sort of the knowledge of what happens in one instance must happen in another— you would expect those same Republicans who led the charge for investigations then to be vocal now. But they seem to be awfully quiet now about all we're learning about Trump's handling of government information. Maybe amnesia selectively? How quickly some people forget or maybe want the electorate to forget. Will there now be lock him up chance? Well, of course, they wouldn't be warranted. We don't actually know if if Trump broke any laws or violated the Presidential Records Act by taking more than a dozen boxes of federal documents with him when he left office. Some of which, by the way, could contain top secret classified material, according to a new report from The Washington Post tonight. Now, obviously, the president is able to declassify things, but at Mar-a-Lago, he was now the former president and top secret. Well, the Post cites horses saying some of those boxes actually contain material clearly marked as classified. And we do know the National Archives has asked the Justice Department to investigate just how those documents and boxes made their way to Mar-a-Lago. And something tells me they're not asking whether it was the Postal Service or FedEx, but why they're actually there instead of where they're supposed to be. And we also know that Trump had a bad habit of ripping up documents while he was in the White House. Archive staff actually had to tape some documents back together that were then handed over to the January 6th committee. And by the way, Republicans have been, 
Well, they've been noticeably quiet about that. But you know who hasn't been quiet about that? Hillary Clinton. She's trolling Trump now about it on Twitter, posting a resounding, mm-hmm. And now there is this new reporting that Trump also had a habit of apparently flushing papers down the toilet at the White House. This according to CNN analyst and New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, who has an upcoming book on Trump called Confidence Man. According to her, staff in the White House residence would frequently find, I can't even get ready to say this, but they would find the toilet clogged in Donald Trump's bathroom with wads of clumped up paper that wasn't toilet paper, by the way. I mean, so much clogging in the pipes, apparently, that an engineer would have to come and fix it. I wonder if that partially explains his odd obsession with toilets. I remember all those rants about not having enough water pressure to flush everything down. Do you? We're looking very strongly at sinks and showers and other elements of bathrooms. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. I won't talk about the fact that people have to flush their toilet 15 times. I have to tell you, um, that kind of makes you listen to that in a whole new light, doesn't it? I mean, even it was odd then, 15 times, and not wanting to talk about it. But I want you to know he calls this another fake story. He calls it, quote, categorically untrue. Says it's, quote, made up for publicity for a, quote, mostly fictitious book. Now that, what he calls a mostly fictitious book, that's one that he agreed to be interviewed for. And in a new statement, he also claims that, look, he had no legal obligation to return any records to the National Archives, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But he also says that he worked collaboratively to do so nonetheless. And meanwhile, there's also the mystery of the gaps in White House phone logs on January 6th. Gaps as to what transpired that day. Records the House Select Committee has obtained apparently don't contain entries of phone calls between the former president and lawmakers, the same calls that have already been widely reported in the press. Now, look, perhaps that's for a benign reason. It could be because Trump sometimes used his aides' phones or maybe his own personal phones. We actually don't know yet, but it is something that this January 6th committee is trying to get to the bottom of, and with good reason. So the question is, did Trump violate the Presidential Records Act with all of those boxes that found their way to Mar-a-Lago? I mean, especially if there were top secret documents in there, according to the Washington Post. And if so, could there actually be criminal consequences to this? Let's turn now to two experts on this. CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen, a former White House ethics czar who was once responsible, by the way, for enforcing rules about records. And also CNN presidential historian Tim Naftali, the former director of the Nixon Presidential Library. What an embarrassment of riches to have you both on today. Norm, I, I want to begin with you here on this because I'm trying in my mind, as most of America is probably doing, to figure out this process of how these documents are supposed to be preserved. I mean, is it every document that a president touches or does he have some discretion as being as we have called them, the leader of the free world, to decide what gets handed over. Uh, Laura, thanks for having me. He's the leader of the free world, but he's not the leader of free shredding. Every scrap of paper has to be preserved. That was what I met with incoming President Obama 
and incoming Vice President Joe Biden. That was what I explained to them about the law. And that's why we know that uh, White House staff would sometimes run around trying to piece together the scraps that were torn. Uh, obviously, we now learn that some things uh, were beyond redemption. We know why that extremely strong water pressure was needed, Laura, to flush away the evidence. So I there's can't... a saying in Washington, often the cover-up is worse than the crime. And uh, uh, we need to see where it goes, but it looks awfully suspicious. It does. I often can't sometimes believe the things we actually have to report and the thought that the truth is stranger than fiction. But then again, I'm talking to a man now, Tim Naftali, you know full well that the so-called plumbers of the world had a role in, well, Nixon's own experience, right, when it comes down to evaluating what he did or did not do in these instances. And I wonder, from your perspective, give us a little bit of the history here, because really, until Nixon, as you know, well know, the idea of presidents being able to take their documents, their mementos, whatever their records were, that was pretty standard practice at that point. It, it was, yes. I think Donald Trump has certainly given a new meaning to the term White House plumbers. And it certainly has a new uh, a new significance for him. Remember, in the Nixon case, the plumbers were supposed to uh, prevent leaks. In Trump's case, they, they were supposed to help uh, get rid of documents, I suppose. Um, our uh, once, once again, this is a presidential norm. Our first president, George Washington, uh, decided that his records belonged to him. And so from George Washington until Richard Nixon, uh, presidents owned their documents. They could sell them. They could destroy them. Um, presidential families often sold presidential documents um, after a, a term had ended. So there was really no control over presidential records. Um, that changes because of Watergate, because of plumbers, uh, Nixon plumbers. And as a result of Watergate, Richard Nixon's papers were seized. It was like a crime scene. Everything was seized, including the famous tapes. After the Nixon experience, Congress decided to act and decided to renegotiate the relationship between presidential records and presidents. Now, remember, all of our three branches are co-equal. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, the Congress was able to seize Nixon's documents because uh, Nixon had been such a bad actor. He, by the way, would later sue and got some of them back. But on the that Congress point, on that point, Tim, the Congress realized, of course, the transparency notion, the idea of wanting the American people to be able to see documents and also the idea of potential criminality involved here. And, and I appreciate the history because it gives us the context we need on this as to why the norm was changed. And let me go back to norm, the norm in this conversation, other than the norms that are often broken here. Norm, let me ask you, first of all, um, it's one thing to have it changed, but we're talking about some things reportedly as top secret documents. Yeah, sure. The president of the United States, as you know, can declassify whatever the president wants. I mean, it's sort of the prerogative. It's good to be the king um, in that respect, even though we don't have one. But now he's the former president. What does it mean when there might be top secret or classified documents contained in the possessions of even a former president? Is the same prerogative still av available? Well, uh, uh, it's not good, Laura. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, there's questions about who else might have handled them, uh, whether he went through the proper procedures to declassify them, uh, whether any procedures were followed at all. I think in terms of the president's uh, criminal liability, and you know this well, 
as a former prosecutor, because of his classification authority, the case for uh, prosecuting him possibly as the January 6th committee looks at criminal referrals, DOJ and inspectors general are looking at this. Uh, The case on the classified documents uh, has some complexities because of the declassification authority. Um, It is also a crime to destroy government documents, seldom prosecuted. But Laura, the most important question here, I think, is was the president destroying, shredding, flushing, taking away documents because they incriminated him? Mm. That gets us into something that is investigated and prosecuted all the time obstruction. And, uh, you know, and, we, well, we have and also on that go, point, though, on that point, you're right, Norm. But on that point, I want to give you the last word here, Tim, on this, because on that point, talking about destruction, I can't help but draw the analogy from, well, 18 and a half minutes and gaps gone from Nixon tapes and what we're seeing here. I mean, obviously it comes down to what's willful or not, but are we going to expect sort of the um, the, the Rosemary lean and stretch conversation again mm-hmm. as to how there may have been gaps? The big difference here is whereas in the case of Nixon, the shredding was generally done by his lieutenants and the 18 and a half minute gap is an exception, perhaps. Mm. Um, I suspect someone did it, but not Nixon. In Trump's case, it was him. And that's what's different. The systemic destruction, and we've been hearing about this, not just just from Maggie's book, we've been hearing about this for years. The systemic destruction came from the top, which means the president himself had nothing but contempt for the idea of record keeping, which means he had nothing but contempt for accountability and transparency. That's why we keep records. We don't keep records to allow people like me to write books. That's good. We keep records so that the public knows exactly what their president did and the presidents themselves feel a little bit of restraint because they know someday they will be judged in the court of history if they abuse power. And yet you both wrote excellent books, Norm Eisen and Tim Naftali. So nice to hear from you both. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. You know, tonight, CNN is obtaining Bob Saget's autopsy report. We'll dig into what it says about the actor's tragic death from blunt head force trauma. Next. We now have new details on the circumstances surrounding the death of 65-year-old actor Bob Saget in a Florida hotel room just last month. The autopsy report released today, revealing that Saget had COVID-19 at the time of his death. But he died, however, as a result of blunt head trauma. The report saying, quote, it is the most probable that the the decedent suffered an unwitnessed fall backwards and struck the posterior aspect of his head. The manner of death is accident. Joining me now to discuss, Dr. Priya Banerjee, one of the top forensic experts in the entire country. Doctor, I'm really glad you're here to help us understand this. You know, forgive me, the prosecutor within sees a report like this, and obviously my mind begins to churn. But from your perspective, you don't look at this as being something that is suspicious, even though we see things like blunt force injuries. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I read the whole report, not just obviously the final diagnoses. And when you put it all together, I think it is, you know, most consistent with some sort of accidental, whether it be fall or impact, you know, that led to his death, sadly. 
Now, what makes you, I mean, when you read the report, walk us through sort of your approach to doing it. I mean, you see the head injuries, you learn about the pooling of the blood, we hear about the different languages described. When you're looking at this and evaluating, and obviously you did not do this as your medical examiner or forensic report, but when you're reviewing it, what are you looking for to determine that it was an accident? True. Um, You know, I have to sort of, you know, I don't have the investigative reports um, Mm -hmm. given to me, right? That's what the original medical examiner would have. But taking it into into consideration, you know, first I started looking at the outside of the body and I'm just going to point to my head, sort of at the back of my head where my fingers are, basically the mid back of the skull and the scalp. That's where he had what's called an abrasion which is if anyone skinned their knee, you know that's what an abrasion is, where the skin basically, top layers of it are brushed off from some sort of trauma, and in this case, a blunt trauma. So that's where the impact was, and then there's bleeding underneath it and skull fractures and deeper injuries to the brain. You know, if I I think of more nefarious issues, I would Mm -hmm. think that there would be lacerations and, and multiple hits related to it, you know, not just a a single impact. I think when I looked at it, I could say, okay, this is all consistent with one event. And to be clear, obviously, you know, we don't have all the information you were talking about from your perspective and your experience, which I really do much, very much appreciate. But one of the things I think that would shock people is this idea of the injuries. There were some orb, there was, you said the word fractures, plural fractures, and the idea of what was yes. apparent in the orbital um, area around the eye area there. You know, um, when I, when I look at this and say to myself, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but if somebody is hit in the back of their head, why would there exhibit some indicia of injury to the front of the face? Does that lead people to think maybe somebody was hurt in the front as well, or is it just the impact would actually resound in that way? And and that's that's exactly the great question. You have to understand the underlying mechanisms. And if I could just explain it, you know, as simply as possible, he fell to the back of his head where I'm pointing. That's a lot of force. Okay, it fell or had an impact, whatever it may be, it, there was a lot of force generated. It, you know, rubbed away the skin of the, the surface of the skin, but that force now goes through the skull, it radiates around, and the brain is also within a fixed box, which is a hard box, the skull. So now the impact goes from the back to the front. And so if you think about sort of like an eggshell, in a way, there's thinner parts of the skull that cracked, which are towards the front. And the brain is actually pushed from the back to the front and then pushed back again. And so that movement is injuring the brain, causing bleeding in and around it, as well as the force when it radiates from back to front. That's where you're getting those um, orbital skull fractures. Now, when there's wow. bleeding, especially over the eyes, what you're getting is that blood sort of seeps down. and it looks like someone can have a black eye, like they were punched in the face, but that's not what we know. You know, it's consistent with bleeding from the inside tracking down. Um, it just, it's shocking to think about just obviously how fragile life is and the idea this could come from one impact, just how fragile the brain is. Thank you, doctor, for all of your expertise in this. And of course, I, I can't help but think about what his children what his wife, what his family and loved ones are thinking about this. We're talking about it in a very clinical way, obviously, but not out of disrespect. We all want to understand what happened and, and understand the loss of life. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know, there are also new developments tonight in the trial of Sarah Palin versus, well, the New York Times. 
Palin took to the stand again today in her suit against the paper for defamation, and she reportedly shouted, objection. She did it. We're going to weigh in on the arguments on both sides next. So Sarah Palin took the stand today for the second day in a row in her defamation case against the New York Times. Palin telling the jury that she believes the New York Times acted with malicious intent, causing her emotional damage, and saying, quote, it's hard to lay your head on a pillow and have a restful night when you know that lies are told about you, a specific lie that was not going to be fixed. That causes some stress anyone would feel. Back with us is Ted Boutros, a constitutional law and media attorney who has previously represented CNN in legal matters. Ted, I'm glad you're back because I have a lot of questions about what people are asking about here. First of all, you know, this idea of um, her testimony, you know, part of the standard here is the actual malice, which is why she probably mentioned that notion, which is a higher degree because she's a public figure. And so they think because you're thrust into the limelight, you ought to take a couple um, hits on the chin. Did she make a compelling case for herself about how actual malice was actually, um, you know, established here? She did not make a, a, a compelling case at all, Laura. She bears a heavy burden under the First Amendment to prove actual malice. It was a very, very weak presentation, very Palin-esque, you know, weird use of words, tried to be folksy, evasive, made a, a number of just false statements herself from the stand. Uh, it, it, it did not work. And in terms of evasive, I mean, was she actually asked about, well, how did this actually impact? That's part of the burden for they have to prove, right? You can't just say, theoretically, this might have happened. You have to actually be concrete about how it actually did, right? It, exactly. You just zeroed in on, on one of the biggest gaps in her case. She could not point to it in a single specific conversation with anybody, her, her family members, her close friends, where they said, we saw that article, it's terrible, or, or you know, she called them and said this article's terrible. She couldn't point to anyone who shunned her or who thought differently about her. She couldn't point to any financial harm or lost opportunities. It was a glaring, glaring gap in her case. And, and she was very general and evasive. And it was clear she was just trying to, uh, you know, tap dance around the fact that she had no harm and no evidence. Now, early in my career, as you know, I did defamation cases, and so I don't want to let you know the media off the hook here in this respect because there are instances where there is actual malice, right? But it's a very hard sort of burden to be able to reach here. But if it hadn't been corrected as quickly by the New York Times, right? If it hadn't been corrected, if it hadn't actually been corrected in that in that pace, would there have been a more substantial case that she could have made here? It, it would have helped her slightly, but the, the fact that uh, there was no correction doesn't really help on actual malice as long as the proof shows that the, the journalist and the news organization at the time of publication did not believe that the information was false and publish it anyway or recklessly ignore their own knowledge that showed that it was false. Uh, but the correction, again, just amplified the fact that the New York Times, including James Bennett, 
the editor who uh, testified, were acting in good faith. They made a mistake. It famously, uh, people talk about journalism as the first rough draft of history, and the Supreme Court has built into the First Amendment test the notion that there has to be breathing space for the occasional good faith mistake. That's what happened here, uh, and I think that's what the, the evidence showed over and over again. And even at the time the Supreme Court made the statement about breathing space, I'm not sure anyone could have contemplated the 24-7 news cycle and the different iterations of journalism and the sort of breakneck pace that we are all at. But we still have the standards, obviously, to make sure we're complying with. So it's interesting to think about the way she's framing this. But she says that she may still appeal to, obviously, the Supreme Court to sort of test the New York Times versus Sullivan standard if she is unsuccessful here. Is it likely to be changed in some significant way, do you think? I don't think so. I think it, it, there could be some refinement. I think the media landscape has changed. And you're right, there is a balance that people do have the right to protect their reputation. Uh, but the Supreme Court, uh, I don't think, is going to overturn New York Times versus Sullivan. It's, it's the cornerstone of our First Amendment jurisprudence. It's important to democracy. So I think it's a long shot, but that's what's going on here. She's trying to get the courts to change the rules. Others are too. That would be bad for our democracy and bad for everyone who wants to have a free and open debate in our society. Ted Boutros, you are a very, very smart man. But I also look at the Supreme Court and say they've been inclined to test precedent very recently. I hope perhaps you're right about those cornerstones actually being maintained. Ted Boutros, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. And now to the ongoing standoff at our border with Canada. Protesters on the Canadian side have been actually blocking one of North America's biggest commercial gateways for days now. and It's causing all kinds of disruptions. We have the mayor of Windsor, Ontario, a bridge away from, from Detroit, the Motor City. So what are the options to defuse the tensions? And how is this problem going to get fixed before it gets worse? That's next. Canadians trying to feed their families and American workers trying to earn a paycheck are the ones feeling the impact of scenes like these. For four days now, traffic on the Ambassador Bridge has been disrupted. Now, that bridge connects Detroit and Windsor and is the busiest international crossing in North America. That's in addition to the almost two-week-long siege of the capital city's downtown core and a blockade shutting down a crossing between Manitoba and North Dakota. Now, look, it's not accurate to call what's happening in places like Windsor simply a trucker protest. As CNN reporters in the scene tell us, there are many more non-truckers that are there than are actually truckers. Closing those bridges actually cut Canadians off from food. You know, the U.S. exports $21 billion in food to Canada every single year. And meanwhile, American automakers are sending home some workers because their plants are now cut off from the part they actually need to keep the assembly lines moving. One economic group estimates lost wages for Michigan auto workers just this week alone, mind you, could top $51 million. And this might actually spread. I mean, the DHS is now preparing for a similar scene here in Washington, D.C. next month. And they also issued a warning about similar plans to try to disrupt traffic even around the Super Bowl in L.A. Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins is seeing the impact firsthand 
and he joins us right now. Mayor Dilkins, thank you for being here today. You know, I gotta say, for many people looking at this, this idea of calling it a protest involving just truckers or thinking they know precisely why everyone is protesting is actually not true, right? It's very amorphous. You've called it sort of a leaderless group. Is that right? It is a leaderless group, and in many ways, it reminds me of, of of the Occupy Wall Street movement, where it wasn't no one was quite clear what the ultimate goal was or the end game was of this group. Uh, and so that is, in some ways, what we have playing out on the streets here. And in addition, I would describe some of the protesters to be more like the ones you would find uh, at a regular G7 or G20 meeting, where they're just angry at government. Uh, and some are, you know, just willing to, as they say, willing to die for the cause. And that's problematic when you're on the ground trying to deal with this in a policing or a sensible type way. If someone's willing to die for a cause, obviously it makes you think that they're willing to be, there might be violent in the actual event. Have you tried to take more policing action to try to disperse people from this area? Are we there yet? Yeah, so police have done a, a really good job trying to negotiate with uh, the protesters, but again, there's no one leader and there's no one common theme. So you can make an agreement with one person and e easily have that overturned uh, by a group that is, you know, just a few cars away. So it's been difficult for police to do that. There have been incidents uh, of, of violence where protesters have grabbed tire irons and surrounded police and they've had to disengage. Uh, and so there are, you know, it's it's just, it's, a, it's an illegal blockade. It is a protest that you know, we, we support the hallmark of our respective democracies. It's all about understanding and, and, and being able to listen to people and communicate, express oneself. That's okay. What's not okay here uh, is blocking the busiest international commercial corridor between the United States and Canada that every single day carries $400 million of goods back and forth between our respective countries. And as you say, with this idea of this international crossing in particular, and obviously we're balancing the notions of people having the right to protest in a peaceful way that's not disruptive perhaps as well. But as you mentioned, the idea of if the end game is not clear, if there's not the coordination, how does this end then? I mean, you're in a very precarious position knowing that it hurts your community. It's hurting, frankly, North America as well. So how does it end? I mean, what does it take to actually get it to stop? Do you have any idea of where to go next? Well, hopefully it ends peacefully. That's the ultimate goal from all sides to make sure that we are dealing with folks in a fair and reasonable way and this ends peacefully. No one wants to see anyone get injured or harmed. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, if they won't leave peacefully, there will have to be action that is taken to help move these people out. And if that involves bringing in tow trucks, if that involves bringing in additional police support from across Ontario and across Canada, uh, so be it. They're already starting to, uh, to, to arrive here and we're going to have police support to be prepared for any uh, eventuality. And what kind of support are you getting sort of nationwide about this issue? Obviously, North America obviously includes the United States of America. Are you getting coordination on this side of the border as well? Is there coordination among other areas? I mean, obviously, a lot of Americans might look at this and mistakenly think this is a Canadian problem, but really it's a North American issue at this point in time. What kind of coordination is there? Yeah, so I've had conversations with the governor of Michigan's uh, office. I've had conversations with Mayor Duggan in Detroit, and certainly everyone that I've spoken with is offering to provide whatever assistance uh, we need. And so at this point, uh, from a U.S. perspective, uh, we appreciate all that is happening and all that is being offered. Uh, right now, the, the situation is under control. Tomorrow we go to court at noon to, to seek an injunction uh, to help uh, the police you know, have documentation in their back pocket that they can present to this, this group of protesters and say, time to move on. 
Uh, and if they're unwilling to move on, we will bring in the tow trucks, we will bring in the equipment that will help move the vehicles out of the way to reopen this border crossing because it is too essential to both of our national economies and the livelihood of this border crossing puts, uh, or the importance of this border crossing puts a lot of bread on the table for, for families on both sides of the border. I echo your sentiment and hope that this will be peaceful. But, you know, if people are talking about their convictions and they're already engaged in a behavior that's so disruptive, how much confidence can you put in the piece of paper that the cops will be able to show? I mean, what if they don't want to go? You mentioned the tow trucks. How are tow trucks navigating this blockade in some way? I'm just looking at logistically here. What can you do to change things if they don't want to leave and don't want to respect coming from the, from the government, another piece of paper. Yeah, I, I get that this injunction would be a single piece of paper, but it gives police more weight uh, in the actions that they are prepared to take, and, and they will do what is operationally required to move people out. Uh, you can't have anarchy uh, take over the community. You can't have anarchy shut down the busiest border crossing uh, between our two nations. There has to be a resolve here, uh, and to the extent possible, we want it to end peacefully. No one wants anyone to get hurt. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're prepared to go in and move folks out if that's what's required in order to open that border crossing. Mayor Drew Dilkins, you've got quite a job ahead of you. And of course, everyone is watching. Thank you for taking the time. And I wish you all the best of luck to resolve it. It's in our all collective interest. So thank you. Thank you very much. You know, look, talking about log jams, I mean, senators have finally struck a deal to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act after three years of negotiations, by the way. Angelina Jolie got emotional advocating for it. And I'll tell you what is the most unconscionable thing about that delay next. So we need to talk about a headline that you may have missed this week. There was a deal that was reached on Capitol Hill to renew the Violence Against Women Act, and it came with the help of star power, too. Activists and actress Angelina Jolie, who's made several trips to Washington, D.C. in just recent months to push for this very legislation. And it was notable not just because her daughter shared in her advocacy, but by how emotional she got as she shamed Congress for its silence. The reason that many people struggle to leave abusive situations is that they've been made to feel worthless. When there is silence from a Congress too busy to renew the Violence Against Women Act for a decade, it reinforces that sense of worthlessness. You think, I guess my abuser's right. I guess I'm not worth very much. Most of all, I want to acknowledge the children who are terrified and suffering at this moment, and the many people for whom this legislation comes too late. The women who have suffered through this system with little or no support, who still carry the pain and trauma of their abuse, the young adults who have survived abuse and emerged stronger, not because of the child protective system, but despite it, and the women and children who have died, who could have been saved. But let me take a step back for a moment, because there's actually more to this headline that should bother all of us. 
It's frankly unbelievable that we even need to have a Violence Against Women Act, but we do. It's also unbelievable that the Violence Against Women Act was allowed to expire in 2018, but it did. And even in a political climate such as this, frankly, it's unbelievable that it took more than three years to negotiate a way to renew, let alone strengthen, that act. But it did. But what is absolutely unconscionable is that it actually came down to the NRA. And why? Because they opposed a loophole known as the boyfriend loophole. What is it? Well, as it currently stands, the act ensured that anyone convicted, not just accused, but convicted, as in due process occurred here, convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence would not be allowed to own or possess a gun. And for the last few years, senators have been trying to expand that prohibition to not just married partners, but to those who live together or those who share a child, but also those who are dating partners or stalkers and others covered by a protection order. But, well, the NRA didn't like it. They opposed a limitation on gun ownership in general, even in spite of the obvious truth that it made women and children more vulnerable to violence, more vulnerable to abuse, and more likely to be killed by their abuser who would now have the means to kill. I saw this so many times as a prosecutor looking at domestic violence, and the first thing we would ask, of course, is not to have a gun be allowed to be in the possession. But you would think, in examining it, you wonder who should have been more powerful in these negotiations. Women and children who have every right to be protected from violence? Or a gun lobbying organization like the NRA? You know, we talk a good game in this country about how we want a government to be of the people and by the people and for the people. But times like this remind us that it is increasingly becoming a government of the lobbyists, by the special interests, and frankly, for the love of money. And even when it means violence against women persists. I guess just as long as you don't upset the apple cart of the NRA, well, apparently the little ladies can take a seat. Now, look, maybe altruism isn't your thing. Maybe you only see the bottom line. Okay, well, how about this? Recall that the Air Force was just forced to pay $230 million to survivors and families of those killed in the 2017 mass shooting at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. On Monday, a federal judge found the military was mostly at fault for failing to report the shooter's domestic violence-related convictions to the FBI, which could have prevented him from purchasing the semi-automatic rifle that he used in that mass shooting. You realize he fired more than 450 rounds into that church? He killed 26 people, including a pregnant woman. How did the NRA respond? Well, they doubled down on the myth that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is with a good guy with a gun. When, really, the bad guy with the gun shouldn't have had it in the first place. It's a loophole, though, nonetheless supported by the NRA. But what won't the NRA support? Well, lawful gun owners like maybe Amir Locke or Philando Castile, killed by police officers in my home state of Minnesota. Apparently, those aren't the kinds of causes they prioritize. I mean, 
lawfully carrying a gun and alerting the police of its presence when the car you are driving in is pulled over? Not sure this is the right case for us in the NRA. A man sleeping under a blanket jolted awake by a no-knock warrant being executed, even when it wasn't even intended for him? Not sure we have the time or maybe the resources. A convicted stalker who wants to carry a gun for the next time he violates a restraining order? Ding, 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 ding. Now that's in our line with our mission statement. And the fact that Congress's mission was thwarted for three years because of it? My, that is quite a statement, America. I rest my case. Well, that's it for us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon Tonight, of course, with Don Lemon, starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.